this woman is an alcoholic, and she's sitting in front of a glass of absinthe. And then it says, in that one picture, they say picture's worth a thousand words, that's worth a book about alcoholism right there. Anybody who's suffered the illness of alcoholism can relate to what that woman's expression is. She's unable to engage in or enjoy her surroundings. And that, I just use that as an introductory statement. So that's what alcoholism was doing to people then, and it does to people now. Uh, we're going to talk about alcoholism 101 revisited. So we're going to talk a little bit about the disease of alcoholism, and then talk about who Silver was, what his opinion was, and why it matters so much today. Uh, this is alcohol. This tells you that, that 90% of us have had alcohol by the time we're adults. In our adult lives, 90% of the public drinks. That tells you that 10% of adults have never had alcohol. And I see patients like that in my practice, and I did for religious reasons, for family reasons, for health reasons. They have never touched alcohol, 10%. So 60% of people drink right now, so 40% don't. 40% of temporary problems with alcohol abuse. And about 10% of people end up with what you and I refer to as alcoholism. And a small percentage of these, maybe half of these people, will be what the big book of alcoholics anonymous refers to as real alcoholics. I'm sure there's a couple real alcoholics. In fact, I know there's a couple real alcoholics in this room. So uh, that's what we're really talking about primarily. Now, alcoholism as an illness is nothing new. It's, it's in the Bible. You can read about it in the book of Proverbs. And this is from the Journal of the American Medical Association from about seven, eight years ago, 2003. Addiction poorly understood by clinicians. That's doctors. Well, that, well no, no one in this room should be surprised about that. I'm not surprised about it, since they didn't teach it to us in medical school. Uh, most people still think it's a moral problem these days. We don't screen for it in our, program, in our practices. And many people believe that treatment doesn't really work. So no wonder that clinicians and doctors and nurses and therapists don't believe that alcoholism is a real problem. So it's poorly understood. Uh, it was poorly understood. Now it's poorly understood in the 1930s. This is Silkworth, by the way. This is a portrait of William Silkworth, a little doctor who loved drugs. Now Silkworth was not an alcoholic. He had no alcoholism, no addiction. He was a neurologist slash psychiatrist. Now back in the 1920s, there was no distinction between neurology and psychiatry. Psychiatry really hadn't come into its own as a specialty. But Silkworth worked in a place called Towns Hospital. Uh, Towns Hospital wasn't a hospital, and it wasn't in a town. It was on Central Park West in New York City in Manhattan. It was a drying out place for rich trunks. And you had to be rich to get there. You had to pay cash money. It was about $19 a day, which in those days, in the 1920s, that was quite a hunk of change, 19 bucks a day. And Dr. Silkworth would treat uh, well-to-do people. He would dry them out. He would detoxify alcoholics. So he treated thousands of, of, of alcoholics in that way. And he, he began to develop this idea that alcoholism was a two-fold disease involving mind and body. Now, we have to understand, we have to sort of go to the wayback machine and think about how was alcoholism understood in the 1910s, 20s, and 30s? Well, alcoholism was thought it was a moral problem. Just like I showed you, just like this slide back here, it was thought it was a moral problem. So most people thought it was, these were bad people. It was never taught in medical school since there was no science behind it. No one knew what to do about it, and there was no effective intervention. That was true in 1930. It's true today. Uh, so Silkworth was a psychiatrist. He gave Bill W. step one, which is the problem. So step one says we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Dr. <coughs> Silkworth didn't say it in those words. He told Bill, you're hopeless. He said, there's no way you can do He said, you have an allergy of the body and an obsession of the mind, and you're completely hopeless. That's Bill Wilson, by the way, the co-founder of our Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. He published in The Lancet in 1939, he published his opinion about alcoholism as somehow involving an allergy, and we'll talk about what that means later on. And, and he also talked about some obsessive component that, that led people back to alcohol again and again. This book is the third edition of Alcoholics Anonymous, and his opinion was published in the first edition as the doctor's opinion. Now, in those days, boys and girls, when I was in medical school back in 1930, doctors <laughs> did not publish their opinions anywhere. Now, today, 
all you have to do is turn on the television set, and there's Sanjay Gupta on CNN giving all the opinions you want. We take that for granted. But back in 1930, the position was a bit more elevated in society than he or she is today, and they didn't voice their opinions in public. It was a very strange or unusual event for a doctor to publish any type of an opinion. Any time a doctor published something, it was in a scholarly medical journal. Not the ladies' home journal, but something like the Lancet or the New England Journal of Medicine. And so Dr. Silkworth published this, this opinion in the Lancet in 1939, where he described alcoholism as a two-fold illness. Now, he didn't have any proof of this. This was his, That's why it's called an opinion. There's no way in those days he could have proved what we now accept as a neurobiological fact of life. We all know that there are CAT scans and MRI pictures and brain images of alcoholics and non-alcoholics, and we look at a couple of those, that show us beyond any particular shadow of doubt that, yes, there's something wrong with the brain of an alcoholic. Does anybody who's a non-alcoholic doubt that there's something wrong with their brains? Of course there is. Look at what they do. Look how they act. There's got to be something wrong with their brains. Silkworth was the first person to suggest that it was not just a brain problem, it was a mind problem as well. So, uh, the problem determines the solution. This is what Silkworth was good at pointing out. You can't identify uh, a solution to a problem until you know what the problem is. Now, that, that, that shouldn't bear discussion. That's obvious. But even today, it's not so obvious to people who suffer from the disease of alcoholism. If you don't know what the problem is, you can't identify a solution. So, let's look at what the problem was thought to be. And even today, is, you know, alcoholism looks like this to some people. Anyone know what that is? It's not Stonehenge. It's out in England somewhere. No one knew what it was for a long time. It's been sitting out on the Salisbury Plain for about 3,500 3, years. It turns out to be a big, it's a big wristwatch. It tells you time one day a year. It tells you when the summer solstice is. That was figured out in about 1962. They figured out what Stonehenge was. They had to decode it. So we're going to decode alcoholism by the process of elimination. So I'm going to tell you about what alcoholism is not, and then we'll talk about what alcoholism is. Are you with me so far? Am I boring anyone yet? Good, okay, all right. Uh, the solution makes no sense without understanding the problem. Well, that's simple. The classic example is my wife. Take my wife. She allows me to talk about her from the point of view. She's given me, given me permission. We, we once in our old house, about 20 years ago, had a, a, a TV set and a VCR and went to watch a movie and the VCR wasn't working. It wasn't working. I turned it on to push the button. Nothing happened. My wife's conclusion is that our thing's broken and we need a new one. Now, in those days, I was just emerging from bankruptcy, and we sure as heck couldn't afford a new one. I, I, I gently pointed that out to the missus, and she emerged said, well, we still need a new one. Well, I just happened to pull across and look through the room, and the thing was unplugged. So I plugged it in, and we had it, and we watched our movie. So the problem wasn't the thing was broken. The problem was it wasn't plugged in. How does that relate to alcoholism? Unless you know the problem, you don't know what the solution is. So what's the problem not? Lack of willpower, lack of moral character, lack of understanding or education, or alcohol. So, if you think the problem is lack of willpower or moral problems or lack of understanding, education, alcohol is a problem, you will set yourself down a path which leads nowhere. You'll end up hitting a brick wall. And alcoholics and their families and their doctors and their therapists have been doing this since time immemorial and running into a brick wall. That's why. Lack of willpower. Well, most of us who have suffered with alcoholism think that if we only muster our willpower, we wouldn't be doing the things that we're doing. We could stay sober, we would be able to resist the first drink, we would have to, we could stay out of trouble, etc., etc. Now, uh, just do it is the solution. If, if, if you think willpower is the, lack of willpower is the problem, avoid bars, avoid drinking buddies, avoid liquor, so think of baseball, whatever you want to do, just avoid, <laughs> avoid getting it into your mind, and, and, and just, just do it, right? Well, who's that? Anybody know who that is? Mickey Mantle. Did he lack willpower? 540 home runs. 
he uh, played with pain for most of his uh, baseball career. He was a he was a very strong willed individual. Although you know he was also what an alcoholic. He died he died after a second liver transplant because of alcoholism. Uh, how about this guy? Is that uh, this guy that had a little bit of willpower? Who knows who's that? Winston Churchill. That's a that's that's important. If you look at willpower and then Google, that's the picture that that guy had indomitable willpower. Yet most historians agree that he was an alcoholic. He drank well over a fifth of uh, brandy a day. Uh, that these men did not lack willpower, and yet they suffered alcoholism. Uh, Power your mind to control alcohol. All natural self hypnosis by Steve Jones. There have been ads like this in, in newspapers and journals. There still are ads like this in the backs of magazines about use your mind to control your drinking. How well does that work, guys and gals? It doesn't work. If it worked, none of us would go to A and we just stay home and use our willpower. Uh, so the problem is then lack of knowledge. We're done about this. Well, you go to go to the lecture series like I'm doing right now. Go to this lecture series. Go to read books, tapes, and videos. Self knowledge. Bill Wilson in his in his own story in the big book says he thought self knowledge would would cure him. Uh, Doctor Silkworth gave him the opinion. You have to understand that Doctor Silkworth gave Bill Wilson the opinion after his third detox, and guess what happened? He got drunk. Bill Wilson went out and got drunk. Uh, again and again, and he got drunk. Because he thought that knowledge would solve the problem. Well, knowledge doesn't solve the problem any more than men of genius are able to stay sober. This is Bud Powell. Now, yeah, this is a genius. He's a music, musical genius. He died from alcoholism and drug addiction. Uh, does anyone know who that is? Jackson Pollock. Genius. One of the, one of the prime orders of, of abstract art, of modern art in the 20th century, died of alcoholism. Genius. Any guesses? Time's up. Dylan Thomas, uh, probably one of the most famous poets writing in the postmodern and modern, pre-modern era, uh, died of alcoholism. Uh, so men of genius died of alcoholism just like people like me, who are not geniuses. Okay, the problem is deep psychological problems. Maybe we're just crazy. Okay? We're, we're not, if, we're, if we're not weak, we're not dumb, maybe we're just crazy. I mean, we just, well, we act that way, you know, we do all kinds of crazy things. Uh, so counseling, psychotherapy, medication, tranquilizers. Maybe these things will solve the alcohol problem. Anybody gone to psychotherapy for their alcoholism? I tried for about 10 years, didn't work. Of course, I'm never honest. So these, I'm not putting down these, these, these modalities. They're not bad for, they just don't lead to recovery from alcoholism to any substantial degree. The book says that. The aggregate of recoveries with psychotherapy are very small compared to other modalities. Okay, so uh, anybody know who that is? Freud. Freud. Well, there's a father of psychiatry right there. Where did he die from? Drug addiction. He died from tobacco addiction and he's a cocaine addict as well. So he died from head and neck cancer. So this man, you know, sometimes a cigar just is a cigar. He died from the effects of smoking cigars. He had a drug addiction. So 10,000 pounds of insight, that's therapy, isn't worth an ounce of behavior change. Freud didn't know it. Most, most people didn't know it in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. We now know that Alcoholics Anonymous and for all the 12-step programs are about what? Behavior change. It's not about insight. It's not about learning anything. And you, anybody who's been to an A meeting five times will hear the expression, you can't be too dumb to get sober, but you can be too smart to get sober. I know a lot of people who are smart and are dead because they couldn't uh, adhere to a program. I know a lot of people who never finished high school and can't read who are sober today now talks about us. Uh, so maybe the problem isn't that maybe it's not weak, dumb, and crazy. Maybe we're just bad. Lack of moral character, right? It's easy to believe that because we may not be bad people, but we sure are not bad people, don't we? We do a lot of things that we're not proud of. Uh, I can attest to that. So maybe it's lack of character. Well, a solemn oath, code of morals, better philosophy of life, organized religion, maybe that would solve the problem. Of course not. We've had codes of morals, we've had philosophy of life, we've had, uh, we've had organized religion going back 3,000 years, 
And of course, here's a picture of, oh, that's the last Bing Crosby, if you want to know. And, you know alcoholism affects men of, uh, and women of the clergy as, as well as anyone else. So if just being moral and good was the answer, it wouldn't be any problem. You saw the church like candles and you say it's over. doesn't work. So the problem is maybe alcohol and drugs. Okay, so maybe the problem is just alcohol. Stop drinking and you'll be fine. Stop your drugs and you'll be fine. I have a drug problem or a drinking problem. Now, it's easy to believe that. In fact, it's very tempting. It's tempting to believe that. Why? Well, take drugs and you get in trouble. Drink and you get in trouble. It's the drinking and the drugs. Maybe that's the problem. So just stop drinking. Anybody here who's an alcoholic tried to just stop drinking for a while and see how their life went? How did it work out? Terrible. It's like trying to hold your head out of the water. Sooner or later it runs out and you got to go back to alcohol and drugs just to feel normal. So uh, the problem is not alcohol. And, and, and if you ever plans the eye speak, he talks about this very much more eloquently than I ever put it. It's not alcohol. The problem is alcoholism. So the solution, if you think it's alcohol, is just be abstinent. So we put people in jail. We put people in, in rehab centers. We put people in minimum security prisons and they stay sober. They can become restless, irritable, discontent. They become full of resentment, fear, shame, and guilt. And guess what? As soon as they have access to alcohol again, they do what? Get drunk. Yeah, well, because you have to. Or else you go crazy. You can't stand the feelings. Uh, so what's the point? So, so far, uh, I'm as far as you. <laughs> so what's the point? <laughs> the point of this, so far, is I'm trying to go through a gamut of, 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 of solutions that don't make any sense. So if you think these are the solutions and the problems, you're, you're, you're staying drunk. That's what Silkworth came to this idea after treating several thousand drunks. So the, uh, the alcohol problem is not the problem. It's versus alcoholism. Well, that sounds like wordplay. It's semantics. Alcoholism, alcohol. What's the difference? Well, it's a huge difference. Alcohol problem is solved when you stop drinking. And I know people who have alcohol problems. There, there, there are many, many individuals who have what's called a drinking problem. Uh, they are in uh, early, maybe, maybe post-adolescent, 18, 19, 20. They get a DUI. They get in trouble. Uh, they get caught smoking pot or something, and they, you know, they get in trouble, and they stop doing what they're doing. And guess what? They're fine for the rest of their lives. Most of the adolescents experiment. Anybody have kids? Where are you going to get kids? Ah. <laughs> uh, your kids experiment a little bit, or they got in trouble a little bit. Some of them have, and some of them just clean up their act and fly straight, and they never have another problem. That's called having an alcohol problem. Now, if that's my problem, I can just stop drinking, and I'll be fine. If you have something called alcoholism, the illness, the disease, we call alcoholism, you'll find that quitting drinking does nothing except make your life miserable and more miserable and more miserable. And, uh, because being being sober uh, means not drinking for a long time. Now, being sober all day long is a drag if you're an alcoholic. And being sober means you're going to be sober tomorrow and the day after and the day after that. And boy, it's a long, it's going to be a long, darn life down to the end, you know what I mean? So, all right, so, alcohol problem versus alcoholism. What is the problem? So, this is what Silkworth first said, allergy of the body and obsession of the mind. This is what Silkworth's statement was. And what does he mean by that? And how does that relate to what we know about alcoholism now? So, I told you what the problem is not. You may have questions about that. We're pretty clear. It's pretty simple, actually. If you think the problem is willpower, try harder. All right? Now, about right about now, someone's going to raise their hand and say, what about coffee? Coffee is not an addiction. We'll talk about that later. Okay. Allergy to alcohol. What do we mean when they say allergy? Well, this confused me for a long time because I went to A meetings for three years and didn't understand this. Allergy, that's to me, in medicine, that's when I, when I hear the word allergy, that's not the mental picture I get. Is, uh, is, uh, someone in a field full of daisies sneezing. Because I have hay fever. 
I'll tell you what, I, back at hay fever since I was about five years old. And uh, I, in, in August, I sneeze a lot, I get uh, itchy eyes, and uh, my throat itches and so on. To me, that's an allergy. Well, then there's an allergy that you get to medicine. So some people are allergic to penicillin. Maybe three or four people in this room that are allergic to penicillin. That's an allergy. To me, a bee stink. People get short breath and wheeze and they get a bee stink. That's an allergy. What is Silkwood talking about, an allergy to alcohol? Well, as, as, as a very smart person, I had to go back to the dictionary. What's an allergy? Well, abnormal reaction to any beverage, food, or other substance. That's what a dictionary, medical dictionary definition of an allergy. Abnormal reaction. It doesn't say what the reaction is, it just says it's abnormal. Well, okay, alcohol. What's a normal reaction to alcohol? Well, you got to find that out. Why? We have to ask some non-alcoholics. You know any? Well, I, I, I had to go ask some non-alcoholics. What happens when you drink? Well, it's fascinating. If you ever talk to non-alcoholics, it's unbelievable. It's, it's, it, you don't understand what they're really coming from. They'll say things like, well, we might have one drink, have a drink, one drink, half a drink. Whoever had half a drink? <laughs> half a beer. I see non-alcoholics drinking half a beer. And they may have one drink or two, and they say, we get a little bit relaxed and a little bit comfortable from the alcohol, but if we drink more than that, we get a little nauseated, we get a little tipsy, we get out of control, and we stop drinking because we don't like the way it feels. I'm going to say, we don't like the way it feels after two or three drinks. Now, I can't relate to that one little bit. I have two or three drinks, and I love the way that feels. So what's the difference? Well, that's what we're talking about. The normal reaction, alcohol is actually a poison. If you can boil it right down, half of alcohol is poisonous. In large quantities, you can kill yourself with it. So after two or three drinks, a normal individual stops drinking because they don't like the feeling. Alcoholics love the feeling and keep drinking. That's the allergy that Silver's talking about. Uh, because the brain, the brain is designed this way, we're going to relate to how do we know the brain's designed? If we think the brain is a wonderful thing, uh, in fact, the brain is called a cludge. Clutches is, is Jackson Granholm does an, an ill-assorted collection of poorly managed parts forming a distressing whole. In the That's a great description of what the brain really is. The brain is sort of an accidental thing. The brain is a deep brain structure. Uh, is, is, is this is the part of the brain that we share with the lower, with animals like lizards, and that's where alcoholism takes place. The lesion of alcoholism is down here in the median foramen bundle, in something called the nucleus accumbens. Now I'm going to make you a neurobiologist, and that's not my job. I want to show you what Silver didn't know any of this, by the way. But we now know the brain is this deep structure. On top of that is stuck a limbic lobe, which gives us emotion and memory. And on top of that is stuck a cortex, which gives us the ability to make decisions, to be able to plan the future, the ability to remember our past and, make, and plan. So it's, these things are stuck on top of each other. It's a cludge. And the reward circuit goes from the deep part of the brain out to these other areas out here, influencing us. So, we make bad decisions. Why do alcoholics make bad decisions? Because this part of the brain is controlling that part of the brain. That's why. We make decisions like with the part of our brain we share with lizards. That's what's in control. You ever seen lizards? You ever try to make lizards come when they're called? They don't come when they're called. They don't. You can't make, you can't make lizards sit up and read me. They just don't. They don't do anything they're told to do. And that's why alcoholism is such a fatal malady because lizards... <laughs> With this part of our brain, we share in common with lizards. That's, that's in control, actually. We don't realize it, but it's in control. Uh, alcohol and heroin and other drugs affect this part of the brain, which then affects the part of the brain where we make decisions and plan the future. So alcoholics and drug addicts are famous, are notorious for making bad decisions. In fact, you go to any alcohol career is one bad decision after another. And that's why we get so much darn trouble. Uh, this can go on. You can make very complicated diagrams. I don't want to bore you with this. But drugs cause brain mechanisms to change, cause behavior to change. The environment affects this. And 
back and forth, historical, environmental, physiological effects. So, so drug addiction is a complex behavioral and neurobiological disorder. Now, Silver didn't know any of this. It was complete blank to him. But he knew something. He knew that these alcoholics don't react normally to alcohol. And he called it what? The phenomenon of craving. Now, non-alcoholics have no idea what I'm talking about. It's an abstract term, craving. I've talked to non-alcoholics about this. They say, well, you know, I, I once craved a piece of chocolate cake. Well, that's not craving. That's not want a piece of chocolate cake. What is craving if you're, if you're a non-alcoholic? There's no, the way to understand craving would be to go back to your childhood, if you had a uh, childhood. is <laughs> to go back to your childhood when you're playing in the swimming pool and your big brother held your head underwater. That's craving. When your big brother is holding you underwater and you want some air, that's what craving is all about. Get me out of here as quickly as possible. <coughs> Non-alcoholics, that's sort of a hint of what craving is like. Another word to hint is, anybody here ever gone really hungry for a long time? I, you know, I once had to go three days without food. I had water to drink. It wasn't my choice. But three days without food is a long time <coughs> without eating anything. Body gets hungry, doesn't it? Now, I don't know how many people in here know what hunger is all about, but the idea of craving can be thought of as uh, just pretend for a moment that you're a vegetarian. You know, there's some vegetarians in this room. Now, if I put you in a room and took away your food and gave you water to drink for three days, and I wheeled in a whole cart full of McDonald's quarter pounder of cheese, believe me, you eat one. I can guarantee it. I don't care what kind of a vegetarian you are. Uh, people will do anything to survive. And uh, for alcoholics, uh, the, the use of alcohol is almost a survival mechanism. That's what the level of craving is for an alcoholic. Alcoholics believe in their mind they need this or the drug they're using as a matter of survival, which again goes back to the lizard brain. So uh, let's not let's not belabor that. But what's the abnormal reaction? Alcoholics get drunk. That's the that's the abnormal reaction right there. Non-alcoholics don't repeatedly get drunk. They get sick all the time, and non-alcoholics may get sick on New Year's Eve. And what's, what is what's the term for New Year's Eve? It's called what? Amateur, Amateur night. night, of course. That's what non-alcoholics get drunk and get sick, right? No, you know, alcoholics not going. That doesn't happen to us. Uh, we, we get into all kinds of trouble repeatedly. That's the hallmark of alcoholism: drunk, sick, and trouble. That's the abnormal reaction that occurs in alcoholics. It does not occur, for the most part, in non-alcoholics. That's what Silver is talking about. That's the allergy. This does not happen to social drinkers. Social drinkers don't get drunk, they don't get sick, and they don't get in all kinds of trouble. They happen once, they even happen twice, but not repeatedly, not like us. Uh, the only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. The doctor's opinion, that's page XXX, and isn't that fortunate, the page XXX in the doctor's opinion. Now, what does he mean by entire abstinence? What? Entire means complete, abstinence means no alcohol. Why? Well, Silkworth is saying we have an allergy. That's, what, that's the only word, and the way you treat an allergy is by... Abstinence. So if I'm allergic to penicillin, I'm not, but if I am allergic to penicillin, how much penicillin can I take safely? Zero. So if, if I've had an anaphylactic or a terrible allergic response to penicillin when I'm 20 years old, and at age 25 I get a strep throat and the doctor wants to give me penicillin, I'm going to say, no. no. I'm not going to say to the doctor, well, I haven't had any penicillin in five years, I'd probably try it now, see what happens. <laughs> I'm not going to say to the doctor, why don't you just cut the dose in half and maybe I'll be okay this time. No. I'm not going to say to the doctor, well, maybe it's the people I take penicillin with. (laughs) 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 But my thinking about penicillin is perfectly normal. We're going to get to the second part of the equation in a minute. With alcoholics, it's not just abstinence, but it's something else. So 
Entire absence means there is no safe amount of alcohol for an alcohol to drink. Okay? That's, that's what's so perfect. He said this, and it's written in the big book. The only relief we have to offer is entire absence. So this was the first statement that a physician or a medical person made which indicated that the treatment, one of the main treatment for alcoholism is entire abstinence from alcohol. So the idea, at that time, the idea was you could dry out an alcohol and teach them to drink one or two. Why can't you just have one drink? Silver says you can't have one drink because of this allergy. Any more than I can have one penicillin tablet, or I can, you know, it's just you can't do that because of the allergy. You see, Silver didn't know the biology, he didn't know the neurology, but he knew that these alcoholics who had everything to lose and nothing to gain would go out and drink and have one drink, and their whole life would go right down the tube. So the part of the equation that Silver has gotten us to thus far is entire abstinence. Now, if you remember all 15 slides back that I told you, what happens to an alcoholic when she becomes entirely absent? What happens? Crazy. They go crazy, right? <laughs> so that's the other problem. You know, so we're going to come back to what does step one really mean. You can start to see that there's more to alcoholism than just not drinking. Because Silver starts out by saying abstinence is part of the problem. But then we can't start drinking because we trigger our allergy. But then let's talk about carrots. Okay, so Silver didn't talk about carrots, but I do. There's a carrot right there. Why is alcohol different than carrots? Anybody here like carrots? I like carrots. I have carrots for Thanksgiving. I like carrots. Could you give up carrots if you had to? Yeah. In a minute, right? Uh, remember your first carrot? I don't know if I first carrot. Do you remember the last carrot? I don't remember the last carrot. Now look at your drinking. Remember your first drink? I remember the first time you really, maybe the first time you really got drunk and enjoyed it. I remember that. Could have been 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And you still remember it. Remember your last drink? Well, alcoholics usually remember their last drink or when they wanted, they thought they had their last drink. So alcohol and carrots are different. So for non-alcoholics out there, <laughs> if, you, if you want to think about how do non-alcoholics think, for them, giving up drinking is like giving up carrots. Take my wife again. She's an example. She's not an alcoholic. She's never had trouble drinking. She hasn't had a drink of alcohol in 24 and a half years. Does that make her a saint? Of course not. She never, alcohol didn't do anything for her. She, she even know <coughs> people had two or three drinks, even in college, she'd drink wine, get a little tipsy. But she didn't like, she didn't like the effect that much. For her, a non-alcoholic, giving up alcohol is like me giving up carrots. Big deal. <laughs> Who cares? I'll eat broccoli, I'll eat peas. But she doesn't think, she doesn't even think about drinking. She doesn't, she doesn't drink just because she wants to be an example for the uh, troubled kid she takes care of. That's all. So, alcohol and carrots, it's important to keep that in mind if you're an alcoholic. How do non-alcoholics look at drinking well, like carrots? Yeah, yeah. It's not because they're wonderful people, it's just because it's no big deal to get off drinking. For alcoholics, it's a little bit different. We'll talk about that. So it's not just a brain disease. So it's not just an allergy of the body and so forth meant the brain. Something else is going on. What's that? That's, we're not going to talk about perfume. The word that Silkworth used was obsession. Obsession. <laughs> a great name for perfume, isn't it? Uh, compulsive preoccupation with a fixed idea. So now we are out of the brain and we left the brain behind and into the mind. And what's the difference between the brain and the mind? Well, the brain is a piece of, of, of uh, meat. The brain is a physical object. The mind is not. You can't identify the mind. You know it's there. Everyone here has gotten it. Sometimes we act like we don't. But everyone's got a mind, right? But the mind is a construct. It's a, it's a, it's a uh, who knows what the mind really is. But it's not the brain. 
So that we're dealing with something in the mind. Compulsive preoccupation with a fixed idea. Remember that picture of the brain I showed you? The brain part of the disease is deep down inside. The mind part is out in front, out in front of the brain. They are restless, irritable, discontented, unless they can again experience a sense of ease and comfort. The doctor talked about the way we are, sober and not drinking, restless, irritable, and discontented. We'll come back to that again. So, how do we manage primitive drives? The primitive drives, remember, come from the, from the, from the lizard part of our brains. The primitive parts of our brain control the less primitive parts. Basic drives change our thoughts, change our mind. We are not rational beings. We think we're in control. We think we have control over our lives. In many ways, we really don't. And I'm talking about things like what we choose to eat, when we choose to eat, uh, who we choose to uh, marry and have relationships with. We think we're in control of those things, but our minds are driven in a certain direction by a deep, deep part of our brain. An example is, I'll go back to hunger. You and I, and everyone here, we don't get to decide when we're going to be hungry. We just are suddenly hungry. Now, if I'm suddenly hungry and I'm driving down the freeway and I see a billboard with a big quarter pound of cheeseburger on it, I may just go out with the next exit and go by myself a cheeseburger. Why? Because I'm off the brain. The deep part of my brain has told me it's time to eat, and so my mind is starting to look for something to eat. And ah, there it is on the billboard, I'm going to go eat that. So I think I'm making a choice, but not really. My brain, my, my lizard brain is telling me that it's time to eat, and my brain is sort of convincing me that I really want to eat, I'm going to go eat that. By the way, anybody trying to lose weight? Right before Thanksgiving? Yeah. Uh, raise your So how's the, how's the diet going? Yeah. But that, that's what I mean. We think we're in control, but we're really not. And you have to be an alcohol or drug addict to have trouble trying to lose weight, particularly living in this day and age. So as long as the, uh, the deep part of our brain is in control of our thoughts, our thoughts will not change. That's why we say in A, you have to live your way, behave your way into sober thinking, rather than trying to think your way into sober living. So the direction goes, it goes the one-way ticket from the deep part of the brain outward. It doesn't go back down the other way. The front part of my brain, my mind, can't control my drives. Just can't. Now, my mind is in control. I don't do things that are illegal. I don't do things by my mind. It's not in control when I'm going to feel hungry or, or have to go to the bathroom or something like that. My mind doesn't get to control those things. So insanity, let's switch from the mind to insanity. That's obviously something wrong with the mind. Insanity is the mind problem. Unable to judge or comprehend the consequences of one's actions. So alcohol versus a hot stove. That's, that's a little kid. That was me when I was young. And a hot stove. Anybody ever have a kid who would put their hand on a hot stove by mistake or suck their finger in an outline or something like that? How many times did you make that mistake? Once, Once right? <laughs> I mean, that, most of us, unless you're an alcoholic, you may try it twice. <laughs> most of us will do it just once. Most of us, when we're young, not that be infants, but we'll have a painful experience and we won't go back to that experience ever again. So there's nothing in my mind that makes me try to put my hand on a hot stove twice. I uh, can't stop starting. Personality change sufficient to recover. So what does that mean? That means that normal individuals can learn from painful experience in most areas of their life. Alcoholics can learn from painful experience except when it comes to alcohol. They cannot comprehend the consequences of their action. That's why they can come out of their courtroom after their third DUI and go right into the bar and get drunk. What are they thinking of? How can they do such a thing? Well, it turns out that they are suffering from a form of insanity. Now, isn't that good news if you're an alcoholic? <laughs> As they say in Georgia, your mind ain't right. Uh, that's true. Alcoholic, your mind ain't right. And Silkworth intuitively knew this. He, he developed this idea that there is a form of mental illness typical to people who suffer from alcoholism and turns out other addictions where you end up being unable to judge the consequences of your action. And that explains the ridiculous criminal 
uh, painful, sad behavior of people with alcoholism. And anybody here who's in recovery can look at their own behavior and say, I can't believe I made those decisions. He's been sober for even a month. He can look back and say, I can't believe I used to act that way. He's been sober for 10 years. It's almost impossible to believe you could ever act that way. And yet we do things like that again and again and again. Uh, so, uh, a personality change is necessary to recover. So he talked about that as being what? That's a spiritual awakening. Well, no one knew what that meant in those days. But you can't stop starting because of this problem with your brain. So if you take the problem of, of the allergy of the brain, of the, of, of the body of the brain, versus the insanity, the obsession of the mind, you're powerless because you can't start drinking. The allergy, if you start drinking, you, you get up in trouble. And you can't stop starting because of the insanity. And you end up with this. This is the cycle. This is what Silver was talking about. This is, his, this is his picture of alcoholism, if you will. So the cycle of addiction starts over here with one drink. It just takes one drink, and that starts out this allergy being triggered, a spree, the well-known stages of a spree, drunk, sick, all kinds of trouble. And then sobriety has to occur. You can't stay drunk forever. A firm resolve. What's the Alcoholics National Anthem? What's the National Anthem of Alcoholics? I'll never do it again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we sing that once or twice. And we stay sober. We then become restless, irritable, and discontent. And this gets worse and worse and worse. Sober. Over here is sober. And then this kicks in. I'm just going to have one drink. I'm just gonna, not two drinks. I'm just going to have one drink. For goodness sake, it's my birthday. I can have one drink. The Tigers won. The Lions lost. If the day ends in Y, whatever it is, I'm going to have one drink, and then here we go again. And Silver says this is repeated over and over and over again. And unless the alcohol can have an entire psychic change, psychic change, there's little hope of his or her recovery. So he said that in 1937, he said that. So we're talking 73 years ago, Dr. Silver put this on paper. Now, at the time, it was a kind of a revolutionary picture. No one had ever thought of alcoholism along these lines. Now, we take it for granted. Why? This is this is from a medical journal that was published about four years ago. And if you can see, this is the same thing. Now, this is what, exactly what Silkworth is talking about. Well, he talks about drug expectation, singular gyrus, prefrontal cortex, orbitofrontal cortex. This is the mind. This is the mind causing us to take a drink, loss of control, binge, the well-known stages of esprit, withdrawal, that's DTs and withdrawal, and then the reward circuits are tweaked, and this part of the, the brain is affected, the reward circuits are, are affected this way, and it starts the memory, condition response, all of these are psychodynamic terms, which I'm not going to educate you on, they're very confusing even to me, but you can see that, that today, in 2005, five years ago, when this was published, we thought of addiction as the same way that Silver thought of it 76 years ago. Isn't that amazing? So Silver really had his head screwed down the right way when it came to alcoholism and addiction, except he didn't have the science to back him up. Now there's tons of science behind it. If you go on, if you go on any sort of website now about science of alcoholism, here it is, boys and girls. This is, this is the science of alcoholism. They're just demonstrating what Silver knew 73 years ago. Uh, and this is the result of alcoholism, by the way. This is the end result of that cycle of addiction. This is what you see. This is where, where it all ends up. Uh, death, insanity, and jail. Uh, who's that, by the way? Dr. Bob. Dr. Bob. Or our co-founders. Now, Dr. Bob, why am I showing you Dr. Bob? Number one, the end of the end of my talk. Number two, I want to show you, I want to demonstrate what, what did what did the co-founders have to have to do with, with what Silkworth was saying? Why is it so important? Well, Dr. Silkworth didn't invent Alcoholics Anonymous. However, he was instrumental in helping Bill Wilson understand the problem, not the solution, but the problem. Dr. Bob, on the other hand, 
was, a, was a, an alcoholic physician. He was in Akron, Ohio in the 1920s and 30s. And he was what? He was drinking himself slowly to death. But that, it turns out that Dr. Bob knew what the solution was. He was engaged in a program of spiritual action. Something called the Oxford Groups in the 1930s was a big deal in the United States. Uh, the Oxford Groups was a group of, of, of Christians who got together just to try to be better people. I can't understand that, but they were doing it. You know? They were trying to be just better than someone. They did all these little steps that they would go through. And Dr. Bob was part of this group. He knew what the solution was. It was a spiritual program. But Dr. Bob didn't know what the problem was. He didn't know he was powerless over alcohol. He wasn't willing to go ahead with these steps. Part of one of these steps was to go ahead and make confession and to go make amends to people and, and, and tell people about your problem. He wasn't willing to do that. He was going to go tell his patients and his, and his other referring doctors in the hospital who was an alcoholic. He was afraid. Of course, everyone in Akron knew what? They knew he was a drunk. They were all he didn't think everyone knew. That's part of his mind problem. He believed no one knew he was an alcoholic. Everyone knew he was an alcoholic. Now they said, you know, he, he, was a, he was a rectal surgeon. And they, the expression in Akron was, you bet your ass if you go to Dr. Bob. That's exactly what people said. So, so everyone knew this. He knew what the solution was, but he didn't know he was powerless. Not knowing he was powerless, he wasn't willing to engage in the solution. He wasn't willing to take those little steps. So Dr. Bob, he was quite, pardon me? No, I, Dr. Bob was kicked out of the University of Michigan Medical School in 1910, by the way. That's where famous for Go Blue. He was kicked out of U.M.'s Medical School. He was an Akron surgeon, co-founder, treated over 5,000 alcoholics when he got sober. Current AA membership is now over 3 million, 24 million copies of the Alcoholics Anonymous Big Book have been sold since 1939. This is the fourth edition of the Big Book. Step one is the problem, though. We admitted we were powerless, hopeless, helpless, and incurable. Now, so Silkworth knew the problem. Silkworth didn't have a solution, though. It's, it's, it's fascinating because Silkworth knew that the problem is powerlessness, that, that, but he couldn't do a darn thing to change it. Dr. Bob knew what the solution was, but he didn't know what the problem was. And here we have the solution is came to believe, and, and the big book calls it a simple religious idea. That's all the solution is. A simple religious idea and a practical program of action. No human power could believe our alcoholism. God could and would if he ever saw it. That's the solution. And who's this guy? Carl Jung. This is like 1930-something. This is Carl Jung on the cover of Time magazine. Carl Jung is the person who gave the solution to someone who gave the solution to Bill Wilson. So Dr. Bob knew what the problem was, what the solution was, but not the problem. Dr. Jung knew the solution to addiction was a spiritual experience. And then you had uh, Bill Wilson who knew neither, none of these things until Dr. Silkworth and Dr. Bob came along. Actions, so actions that bring about the solution. This is the practical program of action. Don't drink, go to meetings, get a sponsor, work the steps, prayer one day at a time. These are all action steps. This is all behavior change, not just thinking, but behavior change. And this is, of course, a picture of Bill Wilson. Bill Wilson was the first human being who got all three things at once. Bill Wilson got the problem from Dr. Silkworth. He got the solution from someone who knew Carl Jung. And then he got the practical program of action from Dr. Bob and the Oxford groups. So he is the first living human in which all these things, these three things came together at once, leading to his immediate recovery from alcoholism. Now, it's now November 23rd. This happened to Bill Wilson on or around December 13th, 1934. At this time, 76 years ago, Bill Wilson was in Towns Hospital and his fourth treatment in Towns Hospital drying out pre-visit, pre-visit from the 12-step call. So Bill Wilson is on his last binge right now in the hospital, awaiting the arrival of a guy who knew Carl Young. 
Um, so my talk is going to uh, finish right here because what I'm trying to show you is that Dr. Silkworth was instrumental in telling Bill Wilson what the problem is. He was the first doctor who set down the cycle of addiction here in a medical article and actually used his own experience to identify the problem. Again, he didn't know the science behind it. He just happened to see again and again and again he developed a theory, an opinion about it. And, and Dr. Bob knew what a solution was. He knew there was a spiritual answer in there somewhere, but he couldn't muster the willingness because he didn't know the problem. Bill Wilson knew the problem, someone brought in the solution, and a practical program of action from Dr. Bob, and therefore he was able to recover. So you and I, if we're, in, if we're sober tonight, we're in this room sober tonight because of what these four or five people did 75 years ago. Uh, so that's the end of my prepared talk. I'm willing to answer any questions you guys might have about what I've talked about and about addiction in general. So thank you very much. <laughs>